Listeners, my name is David Blakesley, and this is episode 137 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. So I want to thank you all for listening in, and I also kind of want to hope that this is not your first ever episode of my podcast that you're listening to. Um, we've got a lot of great stuff in the can, in the archives, and I think this will be a fine episode. I'm not trying to do any disclaimers right off the bat, but it's been a couple months since I've published anything under this banner. I've not been doing a lot of podcasting lately, been keeping up with my share of TikTok clips and social media, you know, interactions here and there, but for a variety of reasons, it just has not worked out for me to do podcasting uh, up until today, and I actually just kind of came out of a recording of another episode of our Inside the Box podcast that Trevor Barrett and I do, where we talk about box sets from the Criterion Collection. We talked about the complete Jean Vigo, a very influential uh, practitioner of early French cinema with kind of a anarchist and slightly surrealist angle there. And, uh, you know, one of the founding fathers of French poetic realism and uh, you know, a real darling of the art house set, especially those who like those retro French films. Uh, we're going to switch gears here, for myself at least, as we talk about three movies from Japan from the early 1970s, uh, the Hanzo the Razor trilogy starring Shintaro Katsu. This was kind of the project that he embarked upon as the Zadoichi series, which is what he's most known for, was kind of coming to an end and he was looking for sort of a new angle, new direction to move into. Although I think Katsu continued to portray Zadoichi in the TV series that spun out of that uh, long-running saga of 25 films that were uh, made throughout the 1960s and early 1970s. So let's get our introductions going here. I'll have a little bit more to say about the trilogy here. But uh, joining me again, as they were part of the... Uh, similar episode we did on the Lone Wolf and Cub coverage. Uh, Richard Doyle. Richard, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Welcome back. Hey, it's good to be here. Absolutely. Nice to be talking to you again. And also nice to be talking with David Seeley. David, nice to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Hey, it's great to be back. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Nice to see you guys. Fantastic. Yeah, it is good. It's been a couple months, like I said, and uh, these are two guys I've really uh, appreciated over the years. You are willing to follow me anywhere <laughs> as far as cinematic <laughs> adventures go. And here we are a little bit on the outer fringes here with this uh uh, interesting, but uh, let's just say controversial, problematic um, series of films, three films that were made, like the Lone Wolf and Cub saga that we covered back in November of 2021. This was also based on a manga, and I 
I think is a Kuike is the author's name. I may be mispronouncing that or misremembering it, but it's the same author who did the Lone Wolf and Cub series about a kind of a, a master swordsman who had a baby that he was carting around and you know keeping safe and uh, is kind of a, a very bleak, very intense. Uh, rather frequently graphic, uh, you know, explicit uh, series of, of kind of sword fighting films. Here we're kind of moving up in history a little bit. Um, there is some sword fighting, but that's not the main focus here. Um, well, I don't know. Let's let's just kind of get into it. So Hanzo the Razor, he's a, he's a cop in Edo-era Japan who has upstanding principles about how justice should be served with the interest of the common people at the forefront rather than the hypocrisy and corruption that he is routinely calling out. And that's kind of how he establishes his character at the beginning. Uh, but then there's some other elements that take place that kind of give us a little bit more insight into what makes this Hanzo guy tick. <laughs> so Richard, I'm going to give you a start. Like what, what was it that drew your interest in talking about these films with me? And I'll ask the same question of David and we'll just kind of talk about these three films and our experience of watching them. So kind of give us your, your opening pitch here. Uh, part of it was that I've owned these three on DVD, like the Eureka DVDs for a long time. And I knew I'd never watched all three of them. So, mm -hmm. okay, I, thought, so. I thought I'd watched two of them, but I'm pretty sure I only watched the first one now that I, when I re revisited these. Okay. Um, so I, I was curious to see what the entire series was like, given that, uh, I bought these rather blind and was somewhat shocked to discover the central <laughs> hook of this series. Sure. Yeah. The, the hook, as you say. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail. Maybe yeah. we'll just tease the listeners along if they don't know what they're in for yet. But uh, David, tell me a little bit about your experience with uh, these films and what led you to want to join the conversation today. Well, I, I first saw these like most people on Disney Plus. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Family fair, <laughs> uh, no, yes. Only joking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think we're ever going to see these on Disney Plus. But uh, no, I'm very similar to Richard. I picked up a DVD set uh, many years ago. I've had it for years and I, I watched them all through at the time when I got it. Uh, just because I love Japanese genre films mm -hmm. and I just sort of am always curious anything that comes out on home video in the UK or the US I usually uh, check it out at some stage so <clears throat> um, and just when you said you wanted to do the show because we were talking about Lone Wolf and Cub when it came up and uh, of course like you said I, I'll, uh, I'll talk about anything Dave <laughs> I, I quite like talking about cool films and, and interesting and uh, strange films, which you could kind of use that to describe these films quite well. They are incredibly unusual and bizarre and, uh, you know, somewhat humorous, somewhat, I mean, sometimes very problematic. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm a fan. You um, you remember I quite love the Lone Wolf and Cub oh, yeah, films, sure. but the, the, these films... I'm not quite, I wouldn't put these on the same level of, of um, being that good, uh, but I think they are definitely interesting films. Uh, they have some interesting things to talk about them, and uh, yeah, so I think we should do that. 
Well, here we are. We're doing it. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's let's kind of get the niceties out of the way. So I've already kind of mentioned the basic setup. So this is a film set, I would say, roughly in what the eighteen seventies or sixties, something like that. I mean, it's before you know cars and modern technology. So there's still you know hand to hand combat, swords. Uh, Hanzo, this cop, he also has like this kind of a chain thing that he uses quite a bit. He's got a house full of weaponry, gadgets, uh, including spikes that drop from the ceiling, uh, you know, tiger traps, you know, pits that you can fall into, uh, a panel that rotates around that gives you all, you know, kind of uh, brass knuckles and daggers and swords and little trident things. I mean, you know, it's, it's a very tricked out house because he's a guy who lives in danger. You know, he just know he knows that the bad guys are after him and he's one of these principled cops who's beyond corruption. So he has to, you know, deal with his own safety and protection. But what brings this this series into that problematic territory that we've been alluded to is his interrogation techniques. He is a man of unusually endowed proportions. I'm talking about his genitals, his penis. He has a very large member. And uh, it's never shown explicitly, but there's kind of outlines. <laughs> uh, his garments have a certain bulge to them that I think was prop enhanced let's just say i don't think shintaro katsu is himself <laughs> of such dimensions and he uses uh his member in a in a way that is you know very very you know much uh, well difficult to put a, a positive spin on it he basically rapes women uh to get information from them and uh, it is portrayed in a way that even though they are shocked and offended and outraged when this process begins, it soon turns into pleasures beyond their imaginings or they're begging him to continue. Uh, or yeah, And he will actually stop in the act so that he, they will continue to give them the information he needs. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sell real well in the contemporary context. And I would even say people who are of a very generous mind as far as uh, you know this type of subject matter is concerned you know are going to find their limit here saying wait a minute this is the guy we're supposed to be rooting for here or whatever um and yet i i have to say well this was entertainment that appear appears to be crafted for men this is this is men's entertainment of a certain sort in the japanese context of the early 1970s and we've We've covered a lot of different Japanese films, you know, art stuff, genre stuff, uh, dramas, comedies, you know, and of course the Zadoichi series itself is a is a form of popular entertainment. You've got a character with all kinds of different um, attributes, you, you know, you kind of get to know the different things they do. With Zadoichi, he does gambling tricks. He, of course, he's a master sword fighter. There's moments of comedy, uh, incredible stunts, and and uh, you know, against all odds, survival scenarios where he's taking on huge gangs and all type different types of settings. And so you're you're there to tune in to see what's the variations on the theme. And the character of Zadoichi kind of has his own appeal. Hanzo the Razor feels like they're striving for the same type of thing, but they are taking it into into territory that the Zadoichi series 
never went into. I mean, Zedowichi was almost an asexual character, although there's a few moments where he does kind of get it on, but nowhere to the extent that Hanzo does. So, Richard, I've kind of opened the door. I'll give you a chance to kind of respond to any of that or just, you know, your your impressions of this character and, and what do you think was the, the pitch here? What were they trying to connect with in the psyche of their audience to say, hey, here's the guy that you want to keep coming back for more? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's important for folks to realize that uh, the Japanese sort of film industry more or less had collapsed by the mm-hmm. early seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, television took a giant toll on, on movie going in, in Japan. And in particular, you know, families stopped going to movies. They'd stay home and watch TV. So one of the biggest audiences for films were young single men who had moved from the countryside into the city because of the economic boom and were living mm-hmm. by themselves and still went to movies often because they lived in tiny little apartments, you know, <laughs> by themselves. So the, the film industry kind of made this shift towards this audience that was still like their main audience. And mm-hmm. in particular movies like this, that are adaptations of, you know, essentially comic books that young mm-hmm. men liked and especially comic books that, had daring sexual content was one of the things that really appealed to young men in that era, which is not a huge surprise, right? Right, Um, especially when you couldn't just pop it up on your computer and get your fill, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a large large element of why the Japanese film industry kind of ends up being like this in this period. But, I mean, one of the things that's really, like even with these films, really stands out about it is that Unlike in a lot of other countries where, you know, there's a lot of films like this being made, but it's being made by sort of the fringes of the film industry. Like everybody in the Japanese film industry, with very few exceptions, were working on these films. So very talented people make these movies. (laughs) Familiar faces you've seen in some of the great, like, you know, Mizuguchi and Kurosawa and, or not Mizuguchi, but uh, uh, who's the guy? Kobayashi. That's what. Yeah. But anyways, sorry to interrupt your thought there. Go yeah. Ahead. So, so you get films like these. I mean, I don't think these are like. I agree with David that these aren't up uh, up at the level of the Lone Wolf and Cub films, but these are very well made movies. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For uh, mm-hmm. that are extremely entertaining, despite this like almost like I have to agree radically offensive kind of twist in the middle of them that I can't, that I don't find myself able to bracket that much you know right Uh, and um so it's one of these cases where i you know i wouldn't go around casually recommending these films to people because (laughs) you know if somebody really cannot get past that central you know hook of the films i don't blame them for one second because i have my issues with it as well but if you like you know these sort of you know Chanbara films that they make in this period, these are a fairly good example of them, despite mm-hmm. this very strange hook on them. Yeah, and and even the repetitiousness of it. But uh, I want to give David a chance to kind of weigh in on this kind of elephant in the room type of topic that we we just need to deal with it before we maybe get into focusing on other aspects of of the filmmaking, the stars, etc. Go ahead, David. Well, well, certainly when I first saw the films and when I've just been re-watching them over the last uh, couple of weeks, getting prepared for our conversation here, it, it should be really pointed out that these films, I think, the, the way I've always taken them and interpreted them, they are satire. 
they are they are meant to be tongue in cheek and over the top, and that they're kind mm-hmm. of in a sense lampooning the uh, you know that that's the sort of the male hero in the films, the virile, irresistible, the one who can vanquish any foe and who's irresistible to the ladies who can uh, you know and and he has this you know ginormous uh, you know uh, genitals that he's 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 just uh, you know super endowed and powerful and and it is all it, I think it is meant very much to be a satire and um which doesn't you know still the those scenes that we that we're talking about these problematic interrogation scenes are it's very difficult to defend them because any way you slice it mm-hmm. yeah yeah rape is rape isn't it <laughs> and you and you can't sort of get around that um even when i first saw these films whatever it was like 15 20 years ago or whatever those were problematic scenes uh they are they're not sexy in any way either they're done in such an over the top ridiculous manner that you know i think that is how they were intended to be sort of ridiculous and over the top uh but they are still i mean it's very difficult to like richard says i wouldn't go and uh you know down the pub to just uh, uh random friends i wouldn't recommend that they check these films out this is definitely hardcore movie enthusiast kind of territory that we're in here now yeah yeah i i would say you know on the the sexiness i mean if if you are stimulated by sort of the reactions of a woman you know moaning in pleasure or that kind of a thing i mean there is that element and i and i think there would be a portion of the audience that might find themselves quote unquote turned on or stimulated in some way by that again i'm not defending or apologizing for that element but i think the filmmakers especially and again in a a culture that's somewhat repressed where maybe sexual outlets are not you know as uh, available uh, in a certain way that there there may be a marketing to a prurient interest let's just say um the, the way especially this this net technique that he uses where he's laying on his back uh, the erection again never visible but you kind of know where it's at <laughs> and and he's got a couple of assistants who are you know they have a woman who's literally tied up in a net uh, stripped down and these guys are lowering her up and down on a rope and spinning her around I mean it is it is ridiculous it is goofy crazy nuts but you know again you know, I'm not an expert on all the subgenres or varieties of pornography, but it feels like, you know, they they are catering to a certain taste or whatever that's out there. You know, it should Go be ahead. pointed yeah. out actually that a lot of film Japanese films of this period, like the what they call them, the sort of the pink mm-hmm. films and mm-hmm. the Roman pornos and those things, yeah. bondage was was a quite a a standard element in a lot of these films even when you see some of the sort of yakuza films you know these these scenes of sexual violence and of uh, uh, depicting women tied up with ropes and things is very very common in a lot of these films and it's one of the 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 less savor uh, savory aspects of of the japanese films of this period because there is quite a lot of this kind of depiction of sexual violence and kind of torture and things. Um, 
uh, and it should be, you know, I, I, I certainly would have imagined that uh, it would have been a tough racket being a young up-and-coming actress in sort of late 60s, early 70s Japan, because I would imagine this is the kind of roles that were sort of out there and mm -hmm. on offer for them. So that, that, that's the kind of thing that, that kind of um, makes it a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, but at the same, and, and it should be pointed out too that the two assistants that he has, these two characters, um, sort of when they are, they, they are accomplices to these acts and they stand at the side sort of up, uh, lowering the, the ladies up and down on these ropes and they are shown to be kind of leching and sort of leering and, and making little, you know, sort of laughing and and things like that. So there is... You know, um, even though, like I said, I think the, the, the scenes are meant to be tongue in cheek and a little bit over the top on purpose. Mm -hmm. There is that undercurrent there that does always make them slightly uncomfortable to watch. Sure. And the other element is the masochistic aspect of how uh, Hanzo prepares himself for yeah. his duties. Richard, do you want to take that one on the, uh, the <laughs> self uh, flagellation, if you will? <laughs> yeah, it, it, so common in the three that it's almost like perfunctory by the third one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the film sort of opens with it, of him both um, laying his penis on a uh, wooden block and hitting it with a wooden stick to sort of toughen it up, and yep. also uh, making love to a bag of rice. Which is Yeah, I guess it's like the driest, like, least yeah. inviting environment. <laughs> yeah. Other than like heat or something like that, but then you don't want to burn yourself, right? But I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, to enhance his staying power, his endurance, I guess that's the that's the context, right? That's one thing. I mean, there there is in the first film this focus on him uh, like testing his own limits a lot. So oh, yeah, I yeah. The, the so I don't know if it's mm -hmm. originally intended to be that way and gets sort of just transformed because they kind of drop that element after the first film. Yeah. Yeah, that's not as exciting or, or as humorous, I suppose. Yeah, but you're right. He's he's got him in the first the opening film, he's got himself on these kind of concrete uh pointed blocks with his shins and he's lowering huge slabs of concrete like five or six of them on top of his legs. He's in a kneeling position. I think he's bound up, tied to a pole, so he can't wiggle out of it. And he's doing this because he wants to understand the the effects of the torture that they use as policemen on their subjects. <laughs> so it's like, so he, and this is this is the fascinating thing. He's held up as this model of kind of rebellious integrity if you will he will tell off the police chief and the lords above him he'll take it all the way to the castle if it needs be to stand up for the principle of not taking bribes not being corrupt not showing favoritism so in that sense he is kind of one of these you know cops who's doing the right thing in his own way which kind of puts you in mind of the dirty harry and shaft and you know uh, you know david you mentioned sort of james bond earlier you know the these kind of these heroic figures who kind of have the whole package going on. Um, and, and, and it feels to me like that is a, that's a, a sincere pitch. Like Hanzo is the guy who's going to stand up for doing the right thing in law enforcement when there's a lot of jadedness, a lot of skepticism about the authorities. And of course, even though this is taking place in a previous historic era, 
you know, these movies always speak to their own times, which presumably would be, you know, in early 70s Japan, there's a lot of concern about corruption and hypocrisy and, you know, dirty deals, uh, even in law enforcement and, and other uh, aspects or branches of, of uh, the establishment, the, the, the authority system. And so that's, that's the weird juxtaposition here is that you've got a guy who's sort of put out there as kind of a Japanese version of uh, a Serpico is another kind of cop who's a bit of a rogue, but his intentions are good. He, he's doing this for the right reasons. It's just that the system doesn't know how to fit a guy like that in. And that's, or, so or that's Popeye kind of where the Doyle as well is another yeah, example yeah. Mm-hmm. That as well. The French, French, French yep, yeah. yep. Which we're actually going to be screening at my local film society tomorrow afternoon, though. Really? Kind of a well, a William Friedkin tribute there. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that in the theater with a hopefully a pretty good audience turned out there. So yeah, so these are these are figures of the early '70s era that are definitely catching on, and and there's an appetite for these kind of you know whatever you want to call them, you know, crusaders or vigilantes uh, that are that are you know, pursuing righteous goals in an unorthodox manner. So that's, you know, I don't know if we need to deal any more with the, the rapey sexual stuff or not. I mean, have we kind of covered that, you think? Or are there other <laughs> things to be said about any of that? I think so, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a huge obstacle. And, and like you guys have already said, I'm not going to just be popping these over when I have a few friends, you know, at the house and or, or recommending them. So even, even the caveats that we've already laid out here for this episode – uh, if if this truly is like offensive or triggering material, I say with full respect, you know, walk on by these these films. Uh, if if you've had experience of this type of activity in your life or whatever, or just don't want to go there, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you're probably making the wise choice. But they they are an interesting dimension, and this is maybe about as far as I feel like I need to go in that Roman pink. Japanese uh, film movement. You know, there's probably other things I, I may see down the road, but I feel like this is a pretty, pretty good example of what presumably was kind of a mainstream thing happening. And that's that as your point earlier, Richard, as well. These are these are name respected actors, good sets. I mean, I've seen that bridge <laughs> that they walk over in countless movies of this time. It seems like they're working in the same studio. Um, and with the same resources, the cinematography, the widescreen compositions, uh, cool soundtracks, all those things are there. And uh, that is what makes this, at least I'll call it a salvageable film watching experience. So do we want to maybe just kind of give an overview of the three and, and talk about how they work as a trilogy? I'm not sure that this was intended to be a trilogy. Uh, the first film, Hanzo the Razor, Sword of Justice does actually give gave me the impression at the first watch that this is like part one of a three-part series because it sort of has a bit of a cliffhanger ending. We're going to keep pursuing this conspiracy, this uh, corruption, wherever it may lead. And I didn't get the sense of finality or conclusion like they like these are three stories that are interconnected they still had that same sort of episodic you could almost watch them in an order thing that that most of the zedoichi films have but um uh, richard yeah, yeah go ahead i was gonna say they feel very comic booky in that sense like yeah this was a long-running mm-hmm. comic and they uh, mm-hmm. are picking parts of it which i guess they were doing with the lone, and Cub, lone wolf and cub too but that has a more of a story arc this is like this is very I, i'd say this is a lot like satoichi it's like the continuing mm-hmm. adventures of hanzo 
Yeah. And presumably maybe they would have made more than the three if the series had maybe caught on a little bit more. I haven't done enough research to know what else Katsu was doing or if this series... Do either of you guys know like how this fared as far as popularity or uh, any of that was concerned? The, the, th- the three films were each made a year apart, 72, 73, 74, and then that's the end of it. I don't know. Do either, any of you have any context about why they didn't make more or was there just kind of a lack of interest? What's the story there? There's not a lot of English documentation about these films, to be honest. Um, That's true, yeah. I found very few. Mm -hmm. One one can only presume that because they stopped after the third one that either there was no intention in the first place of going beyond that or maybe the films just weren't popular enough that they um, decided to, to knock it on the head after the third one. Mm-hmm. I, you know that, that, but that that's just just complete speculation based on yeah no no real evidence whatsoever. <laughs> the the only thing I'd say is that films like this kind of stopped being made by the mid seventies. So okay, it it may be that this sort of that this sort of trend just ran its course because there are you know sort of Chad Barr kind of films made in the late seventies, but they've got a very different sort of more historical bent to them. It, it, it's kind of like maybe the, this audience sort of dry, dried up by the late 70s. Yeah, they maybe kind of grew up out of it. Um, I mean, is it that maybe the, the sexual element in particular kind of lost interest? I mean, I'm thinking by mid-70s, maybe, maybe uh, was it like martial arts type of movies or other things, other subject matter that came up? You know, again, I'm kind of out on a limb of speculation here. It just might like be, was. too, if, if Katsu was uh, making the Zatauchi uh, mm-hmm. uh, TV series, maybe he just didn't have time to devote yeah. to making as many films anymore as well. Because back then yeah, they made true. quite a few episodes of the TV series, yeah. didn't they? And mm-hmm. it was probably a full-time job, really. <laughs> yeah, and he did start it the same year that this last one was made, so... Huh. Yeah. So that might just be as simple as that. He maybe just didn't have time to do anything else for a few years. All right. Well, let's maybe let's just spend some time talking about each of the individual episodes. So, uh, Hanzo the Razor, Sword of Justice. Uh, what are some of the things that that stood out to you as like you know the the quality aspects of the film? And I don't know. I don't know how much we need to summarize the plots or the stories. They they all have sort of a a certain formula to them that they follow. But uh, uh, Richard, I'll give you a chance to kind of just give us your thoughts on Sword of Justice to start. Um, that's probably my second favorite of the three, I, I, like if I were to roughly rank them. And I think this mm-hmm. one does a, does so much sort of setup of character and plot and the elements mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. a little bit light on story. But I... I I liked the character setup in this one. I thought mm-hmm. the bits the bits with him refusing to take the oath and all that or for, or for the people who haven't seen it. He's supposed to, all of the marshals or the policemen are supposed to take an oath that they're going to, you know, uphold the law and he refuses to take it saying that everything is corrupt and if he if he makes this promise he's lying. So he won't take the oath. Yeah, he won't. He won't put his honor at stake yeah. by making a hypocritical oath when there's yeah. bribes being accepted and favoritism being shown. Not to him; he's not taking any of that money. But since the department as a whole kind of turns a blind eye to the upper ups and lets them get away with it, then he's he's basically calling for reform in a yeah. insubordinate way, right? 
Yeah. So I thought it's a nice, vivid sort of like it's a very vivid character setup, and then like all three of them, there's a very standard sort of mystery plot <laughs> mm-hmm. that I, I I liked the plot in this one. I didn't love it. You know, is what yeah. I'd say. I'd be hard pressed to actually give you a synopsis of this film because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the story sort of is very me. sort of it's one of those you know convoluted. Uh, sort of jumps around and it's a little bit, you know, difficult to follow exactly, you know, what, you know, it kind of, it, it's difficult to follow the story, or at least I find it too. Uh, and, and in the end, uh, when, when we learn the big the sort of payoff at the end, um, kind of happens quite abruptly. And, and then, then it has like a little coda at the end, doesn't it? It sort of ties up the main story and then mm-hmm. it has this little thing tacked on at the end with his um, meeting these two kids uh, and, and their issue with their yeah. father. Yeah, yeah it, it kind of comes out of nowhere because th- there's an old man who's terminally ill and he basically just wants to be relieved of his suffering. The children are, you know, at a situation where they think, well, he wants us just to kind of put him away, you know, and they can't do that. And Hanzo comes up with an ingenious solution, which is like, well, that's a very strange conclusion <laughs> to a film of this sort, you know, uh, because it really did not, I, unless I missed something, it didn't have anything to do with the, with the main plot. Like, that must have been a, a, a sort of a chapter from the manga that they just wanted to yeah. throw in there for some reason. Well, it establishes character. his character a bit more. It yeah. kind of shows yeah. about his, about his you know, uh, t- t- taking a tragic situation and trying to protect those children and their, you know, so that they can have a life afterwards. So I think it's just like really more of a, just of a, a character bit, isn't it? It also establishes that in Edo era Japan, you, they have no compunction about selling alcohol to small children. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, mm-hmm. but it, it also gives it gives Hanzo a chance to sort of flesh out some of his big talk. You know, I mean, because yeah, he's he's incorruptible and he's out there a champion for the little guy, or in this case, the little kids. You know, and and even this this suffering old man who's got nothing more than a month of agony and misery ahead of him if uh, they just let nature take the course. So it's an interesting sort of, uh, you know, presentation of, of euthanasia and end-of-life issues. But, I, yeah, sort of like you guys have said, this isn't a movie that I turn to for deep social commentary on the pressing moral and ethical issues of our times, right? So, yeah, but, but I, I, and I agree, I mean, there, there is an interesting, um, you know, setup of the character and, and it, it did definitely hook me in. I felt like, okay, I, I can follow this guy. And I, I had known from reputation and from some previous sort of samplings, I guess, of, without watching the entire film through, I kind of got the gist of the whole, you know, what he does with his erection stuff and all of that. So I knew that was part of it, but it's like, okay, well, there's, there's something more than just kind of scandalous you know uh titillation or provocation going on here with this character who's you know standing up to the authorities and all of that um but yeah as far as i'm concerned that's that's adequate coverage of sort of justice unless there's any other bits or scenes that people want to point out before we move on to 
the snare. Go ahead, David. It, it might just be worth pointing out about the director, Kenji Masumi. Yeah, because yeah, he's, yeah let's he, not talk about that. He's probably, of the three films, he's probably the, the most interesting director, and he's someone we talked about quite a bit because he directed, I think, several of the Lone Wolf and Cub films, didn't he? Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's, he's and quite an interesting, I think, artist, and, and you can really see some of the touches of his... Um, creativity and things and the, the style and the photography and the editing and things. So I think it's just worth giving him a shout out really. Yeah. When we talk about the second one, I'll say, I don't, I, I wouldn't agree. He's the most interesting, but <laughs> he did the best job, I think. <laughs> well, and, and there, there are, there is a particular artistic flourish that's shown here. I mean, actually there's a, a few episodes we talked about, um, Hanzo's interaction with the rice bag <laughs> and there's some there's some first person shots inside the rice bag if you kind of get where I'm going here <laughs> and, and then there's a similar first person shot during one of the rape scenes that we've been describing mm. so if you thought uh, Gaspar Noe was doing something innovative with a similar situation and enter the void oh no he was just borrowing from this guy here <laughs> where you're literally up and in okay so I don't know if I need to get more graphic than that but it's kind of this uh reddish yellowish kind of um it's a very interesting montage i mean really from a technical or artistic point of view because not only is it this kind of thrusting in and out of this kind of uh, uh inner you know body area but there's also other things you know eyes and other stuff going on it's it's multiple exposures kind of weird trippy stuff especially with with the kind of uh, funky r&b uh, soundtrack that seems to have been inspired by shaft and isaac hayes and all of that so or, I mean, or performance actually which is a film i i just covered oh, in my podcast okay, a few weeks yeah, ago and right, i think stylistically okay, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of similarities to performance okay. in terms of the macro photography and the <laughs> and the weird juxtaposition of of different types of images and things so I, I, that's where I drew some parallels stylistically. Yeah, actually. it's been years since I've seen performance, but I heard your episode, and I definitely am I'm due for a rewatch. I've got the Warner Archive Blu-ray set on my shelf, so I'll, I'll make my way to that. And nice to chance to plug your coverage of that. Yeah, what was the other film you did? A couple sort of provocation type of films on that episode what was the other one well that was whether we did that with you actually yeah because originally okay. it was meant to be a like a just a favorites because we 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 basically had organized a guest and then because of various scheduling issues we had to quickly regroup and so okay. we just said oh well, let's just do some personal favorites so i okay. picked you and and jonathan picked a performance and then we tied it together thematically somehow to to make it work but uh but it was Yugetsu that we talked about. Okay, before. yeah, which I have seen multiple times. That was that was a good good talk and a nice chance to, to plug your Film Swap podcast, which oh, I'll ask you, you more about that when we get to the end there. So, But yeah, yeah, definitely some innovative, artistically adventurous stuff going on here. They're not just going through the motion. So I felt that does deserve a shout out there. All right. So let's move ahead to Hanzo the Razor the Snare. This is a 1973 film, uh, part two of the trilogy. And this, to me, is the wild one. This is the one where it gets pretty bonkers. Richard, is this the one that you would name rank as your first favorite of the three, or am I? No, I didn't like this one. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I am a big 
admirer of the director of this one, and I, maybe okay. I had high hopes on it, right? Okay. I, I think his work in the '60s is fantastic, like, like top notch. Um, this one felt like a sort of formulaic rehash of the top parts of the first one to me, right? Okay. But like, but very much sort of by rote. Like we're gonna in the first one he did the thing with the swing, and so we're gonna do the thing with the swing. In the first one he he did the right rice bags, so we're gonna do the rice bag, and and I wasn't very much caught up in the plot of it, so it it, right. it wasn't one I really liked. I okay. I mean, it, spoiler: I like the third one best. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, process of elimination kind of gets yeah. us there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. This one here d- did seem a little bit more on the bonkers side, and 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 I guess that's what they were going for. So I wondered if that was maybe the the appeal there. But go ahead, what, what are your thoughts? This one felt to me. I mean, I think. <sighs> Like Masamura, Yasuzo Masamura, who's the director of this one, I think he had a very sort of sharp, sort of satirical edge in the 60s. But I think by this point, it's kind of dried up. And this felt to me like a work for hire, right? Okay. Like, you know, he's going to, he watched the first film and made a second version of the first film. But it it didn't feel Mm -hmm. to me like his heart was really in this one. Um, Okay. I think at his best, he has a very sharp sort of satirical edge. Uh, and I don't think there's material in this one to really appeal to him. Yeah, no, I don't have much of a referential context. As I'm going through his IMDb list, it doesn't seem like he's cracked into the Criterion collection. No, so, he hasn't. Eros uh, what, what, are, what are some of the films? That, okay, so Eros released his stuff. I mean, what's kind of his peak, or are there a couple titles that you know, you'd know you want to say, here's where to start with uh, with this guy? I'd say four. I, I would push hard. Giants and toys, Manji, uh, Red, the Red Angel, and Blind Beast. Okay, so those are like mid '60s works. It looks like, yeah, yeah, mid okay. to late '60s. Yeah. Okay. okay. He's a he's a very artsy film director who like uh, trained first of all in um, Rome under Antonioni. Oh, okay. Well, and came some... and, and was an assistant director under Mizuguchi for a while. Okay, um, so there's some pretty serious credentials, or at least some references, some names to drop there. Yes, and he makes, I'd say, he's a sort of a, one of the group in the 60s who's doing sort of Japanese new wavy stuff, but he's a little mm-hmm. bit more genre-oriented at times. Like Blind Beast is a bit of a horror film of sorts. Okay. Uh, but... Um, He's someone I, I really admire his work, and so I was really looking forward to this one. And it's like, well, this doesn't really feel like him. This feels like another run at this first film, which, you know, it's very likely that's what it was. I mean, he's got to work, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's for to his credit, he wrote the third one, which I like quite a bit. So, oh, okay. So he's a screenwriter as well, not just yeah, a yeah, guy yeah. behind the camera. Yeah, he wrote both two and three. But I, I thought... Like just to gesture at why I, I like three more. I thought three sort of downplayed a little bit of the formulaic elements a bit by that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of get them all out of the way right up front, don't they? And then get yeah, on with yeah. the story. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. one felt more like like seventy percent rehash of the formulaic elements and a little bit less plot to me. Mm. Yeah, well, it gets into this kind of weird sort of abortion cult and this kind of perverse priestess and yeah i mean i I don't know if they're getting into some social commentary there uh, about you know forced prostitution and kind of breaking up this ring i mean is this kind of an anti-abortion message even i mean there's there is some just some interesting kind of 
subcultural stuff happening in the film. Uh, David, you got any thoughts or reactions to this film? Well, I pretty much agree with Richard. I think that the thing is, again, like the first film, I I find the plots to be a little bit sort of, you know, jumping around all over the place. And and it's very salacious, this one, because it is all about sort of human trafficking and, Mm -hmm. you know, abortion, forced prostitution, and there's loads of naked women and sex and stuff going on. So it does feel very, very exploitative in terms of the storyline. Um and I agree that it does kind of rehash some of the same things. And it's one of the things that almost kind of puts puts me off from it because it is kind of just regurgitates the first film again, only slightly ups the ante a little bit. And, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I agree that it's, I mean, they're, my favorite element of the second film really is the soundtrack because it's mm-hmm. uh, Sayo uh, Tamita does the, the music for the film. Yep. sort of this kind of you know really kind of funky electronic vibe to it and it's got lots of really interesting sounds so the the sort of you know all that kind of element just adds some uh you know kind of makes it a bit more cool if you will um but as a film again much like the first one I, i i would struggle to be able to give you any kind of a coherent synopsis about the storyline um, yep. But it is just Hanzo again, just sort of um, uh, uncovering uh, a corrupt, uh, corrupt, um, you know, government officials and things that are up to uh, nasty things. It's to do with sort of counterfeit money initially, and then it leads into this prostitution thing and this weird kind of uh, cult, and uh, and it just uh, sort of ends up with a uh, with a big sort of Zatachi Zatachi sorry like duel at the end. Uh, uh, and that's kind of, that's it really. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, and this applies to the third film as well. These, these, the plots and, and even the contents, if you will, um, whatever these movies are about, seems very ephemeral. It just kind of evaporates. Like if I would have done a podcast right after watching any of these films, I could have given you that plot summary and told you who's who and what's what, but you're right. I mean, I've watched them all over the past week and this was a second rewatch, but they, they kind of just evaporate, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. as far as memory and, and the details of, of who's double crossing who. I mean, you know, Hanzo can be counted on to give a stern denunciation whenever he encounters somebody who's doing something for self-serving motives but tries to frame it as, you know, either their right or their entitlement or somehow they're actually doing the right thing. I mean, he's he's always ready to take anybody who's, you know, pompous and assured of themselves down a peg. Um but yeah, to to what larger cause he's actually committing to or serving that doesn't really seem to be the objective of the filmmakers or of the the writers of the story 
and and the way that he sort of um you know g gives them their comeuppance if you will is always these really sort of convoluted <laughs> sort of you know yeah. round the houses sort of way of just uh doing it. and you just think well at the end just get your evidence and turn them in why don't you <laughs> but they always kind of go you know he does these like little sort of things that i guess are supposed to be these clever ways that he's sort of showing them up and mm -hmm. uh but they don't really sort of I, I don't know it just doesn't really for me anyway they don't really work on that level i think where, where the these the, the hanzo characters quite interesting and like like richard said in the first film they're very good at introducing him and developing his world view and showing the world that he's operating in and, and how he operates in it. But but the stories themselves don't ever really gel effectively to me. And it, and it finds, uh, and I think Richard's right, the third one is probably the best one in the sense that it's the only one where the, where the plot's slightly more coherent. Uh, so it kind of works a bit better on that level. Well, let's go ahead and get into Hanzo the Razor, Who's Got the Gold from 1974. Uh, who wants to walk us into that one? Uh, Richard? Oh, it was sure. your favorite, so go ahead and give us a yeah, little rundown yeah. here. Yeah. Interestingly, this one I think has the least notable director, but is the most normal film in a way. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, it's the most conventionally directed, isn't yeah. it? Like it? It doesn't have yeah. all those stylistic flourishes like the first two do. Yeah. Hanzo's uh, like clued into the fact that someone seems to be stealing gold from the royal treasury. That's ah, yeah, they're they're mixing other metals in and diluting yeah. the value of the gold, so the the peasants are kind of suffering because yeah, all of that. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think that's the second one. Oh, is that the second one? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the first Sorry, one, okay. they're hiding gold in reeds and throwing them into the pot. Oh, that's right. Conveniently, right. right next to the treasury. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a woman disguised as a ghost that's both chasing people off. That's right, and there, there's that underwater sequence and all yeah. of that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. So it turns no out no one would notice anyone throwing those giant bamboo shoots out the window. Of course, <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> so it's a it's a blind musician who's uh, stealing this money and and using it to uh, borrow it you under use. Usurus interest rates to poor samurai. Okay, and, and uh, Hanzo gives him a gives him his comeuppance, but also builds a cannon. <laughs> a completely unrelated subplot <laughs> that I really enjoyed. <laughs> uh, the 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 local lord's doctor is turned very vehemently in favor of adopting Western technology, and he's being completely uh, ignored. And it, the doctor is also conveniently going to die in a month. So Hanzo hides him and helps him build a gold, a copper cannon that he uses to blow to heck all of the uh, Lord's troops to prove to him that Western cannons are very dangerous and he needs to prepare. Okay. To them. So we so we have a commentary on the Westernization of yeah. Japanese culture and the, the dilemmas. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there we go. Yeah. So we're getting yeah, into some yeah. substantial meaty issues here. Okay. Yeah, I thought the plot of this one was the most easily understandable of the of the three, and sort of hung together. Mm -hmm. And they downplayed the the central sort of rape hook quite yeah. a bit in this one, and I, I, that was really kind of welcome. You know, most of it was out of the way really early on, yeah. except for one scene in the middle. 
let's let's kind of get the obligations out of the way and be done with it yeah. and then get on with a more conventional kind of thriller action whodunit thing right which does suggest to me that maybe the appeal of these films wasn't really was sort of subsiding a little bit and they were trying to make a more conventional film yeah you know and that's the thing i mean at a certain point when you are sort of depicting you know rape and, and sexual trafficking abuse of, of different sorts in this kind of supposedly enticing way even even the most jaded filmmaker must have some kind of a conscience like <laughs> how far do we want to go or or is this just not, not connecting cannot not connecting anymore but yeah so there there are some definitely you know this is the 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 um I've rewatched the first one and the second one more recently than I've rewatched this one here. So, yeah, I'm I'm honestly a little bit more fuzzy on the details here. So, David, do you want to kind of fill in any pieces that uh, stood out to you that Richard hasn't already covered? Well, no, I, I mean I think he's he's covered it pretty well. I mean, sure. it's got it's you know it it does have a bit more of a story that you can follow, and I think mm-hmm. all his points are completely valid. I think anything I'd say would probably just um, re, I'd be rewording what he said. So fair enough. Well, and I, I think, and I, and I, I think we don't really need to belabor the point or, you know, go into to extra depth on this. I, I guess I want to. Maybe we can even start summing things up a little bit here. Um, I, I do appreciate Shintaro Katsu and the way he really puts himself out there. I mean, you get to see his his bare rear end and 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 there's a certain kind of go for broke aspect. I, I, I have a lot of admiration for him as a performer because he's a he's a big husky guy who nevertheless remains very nimble and very kind of fearless. And I, I'm sure he had an ego and ambitions and thought he was, you know, crown royal stuff and all of that maybe might have been even an insufferable person to be around once uh, his ego fully kicked in here but as an entertainer as a screen presence um you know it's it's interesting to see a different side of him than what we became familiar with in zadoichi in fact in the opening scenes of the very first movie there are very big close-ups and emphasis on his eyes, which, of course, we, yeah. we hardly ever saw, except when his pupils were rolled up into the top of his skull there, uh, portraying the blind man. So this is Katsu saying, you like Zadoichi? Well, here's another side of Shintaro Katsu here. <laughs> He's kind of the anti-Zatachi, isn't he? He's kind of like yeah. completely like the opposite in many ways of, of him, isn't he? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's not the reluctant hero who's cornered into having to fight he's kind of going out there looking for trouble no, I, I was just going to say even when even when Zanoichi has like uh, has the upper hand he tends to come at things about in a diffident sort of roundabout clever way Yeah, and, and Hanzo just storms right to heck in <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah like he, he lives for this he, he's he's just itching yeah. for a for a brawl you know oh I was just going to say like there, there are those scenes like I think it's in the second film when when the uh, the baddie sort of kidnaps uh, a woman and is holding her hostage in that whole scene where the the standoff and he just kind of he gets himself smuggled in and in like in a sake barrel or something and then he you know, he's he's quite good at sort of putting himself into these really sort of um, yeah oh yeah yeah and dangerous situations with absolutely no he doesn't phase him at all yeah yeah. Um... 
I, I also enjoyed his banter with Ko Nishimura. He's one of those famous faces that, even if you don't know the name, you've seen him in, you know, dozens of oh, Japanese yeah. films of this era. He's the the snake, the kind of the, the police chief that Hanzo reports to. Uh, and in the first movie, he's a pretty big part of the corruption and all of that, but he retains his position and is there kind of as a comic foil in the second and third films as well. But uh, again, this is another example of one of these kind of veteran, professional, has done it all, Japanese actors. He can do the serious, solemn, samurai, art house stuff, you know, the kind of really gripping, dramatic, intense, or he can do these kind of, you know, somewhat goofy comic roles. I'm sure he's just a working actor doing whatever he needs to do to keep those paychecks coming in. But uh, that's another element of these movies that i guess i just did enjoy just because you sort of see these guys just kind of riffing a bit here and and having some fun uh in you know you know kind of limiting roles in a certain sense but uh i appreciate it for what it was one thing just sorry to go back to the third film again because you asked me about one thing that i could point out because i think in terms of the three films the third one has got sort of the best action sequences Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the in the first two films, I always f- I find a lot of the the sword fights and those bits to be a little bit sort of awkward and not really very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly, when you see the Zatachi films, even after you've seen like sort of twenty of them, there's still that sort of excitement when Zatachi faces off against thirty guys. Oh yeah, and, and it's yeah. almost like a ballet in the way that he moves and. And those scenes are always really wonderful. But in the first two Hanzo films, the the action scenes aren't really that exciting, or at least I didn't find them to be. But the third film improves on that a little bit. I think some of the big uh, the, the fight scenes where he has the big sword fights with the, the guys when they attack him uh, are a little bit more exciting and, and work a little bit more uh, dramatically for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It even has a final standoff between him and the main bodyguard that feels like it comes in from the Zanoichi series. Yeah, 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 yeah. The big boss who's been kind of waiting his turn to kind of settle the score, yeah. Um, Another just odd little detail I noticed. These these movies have very delayed opening credit scenes. Did you notice that? They were like all like Mm. 10 minutes in before you get the titles and all the credits. (laughs) And I don't know if that Mm. was just a... Yeah, you know, Drive My Car, which came out, what, in 2019 or whatever, has a famous, like, 45 minutes between the start of the film and when they finally do the title <laughs> sequence and all of that. It's mm-hmm. like, so is this is this building on that tradition? I, you know, again, three, four minutes, that makes sense. You know, James Bond obviously always has famously had an opening sequence before you get the credits and all of that. Yeah. Uh, but this really, they go quite a ways into it, you know, like 10, 12 minutes, and then finally the title comes up and you see all that other stuff. Yes, yeah, so you said that, I was wondering if it was a James Bond influence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that one. Is it the first one when the, when he walks across the map? You know, yeah. he has the map in the background. That that That's a really good opening, you know, quite, quite a catchy opening. And, and it's kind of amusing at the same time. But stylistically, I just really like that one, that opening. Yeah, yeah, and and the first film ends on a map as well. And it's got a, a band called The Mops, who were kind of a... 
kind of a oh, yeah a, yeah they, they do the final theme in fact that's probably what i will use for the outro music on this episode but they were kind of like the japanese beatles or at least they aspired to that kind of a sort of a quasi psychedelic western influenced rock and roll band uh uh, so yeah, <laughs> I'm just a mops. Yeah, I'm They're just a mops. Yeah, that's that's that that's the one that's on the the Nuggets compilation or the yeah. Nuggets volume two, I should say, because that was the international yeah. one there. So yeah, nice little bits of trivia to throw in there. So, but yeah, the series, like you say, it's it you know it's called a trilogy. I think that's what I labeled it in the show notes. But it's not a trilogy in the sense that it starts and the arc finally ends at the end of film three. And film three ends, and that's pretty much you can just figure Hanzo went on to have a career from there, but we don't really know what happened. But it wasn't like a, a grand finale uh, of any sort. Although, you know, as, as again, it was a big showdown and, and uh, you know, the thing happened there. So that was pretty much the end of the series. So. Yeah, any final uh, comments on the trilogy or the, the three films, uh, Hanzo and all of that? I'm always glad to see Diego Cassano, if I'm pronouncing that right, who played one of his assistants. Okay. He's in some of the Zatoichi films as well as the Lone Wolf and Cub series, and I think of him as the Japanese Samuel L. Jackson because he looks exactly like Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, okay. Well, now that gives me something to look for again. <laughs> I did not make this association, but it's a very fascinating parallel to draw there yeah i mean i i did enjoy the bit players i mean the the, the comic moments and you know the, the you know the, the tough guys i mean all those genre elements are there and they are there to be enjoyed if uh, if you've cultivated an appetite uh for that type of a thing so yeah i guess that's my bottom line i i'm you know glad to have uh watched these films definitely enjoyed the conversation with you guys and a chance to sort of find out what Shintaro Katsu had in store after he wrapped up his legendary Zatoichi series. I think I think the Zatoichi is rightfully his his lasting legacy, but this is an interesting footnote uh, to say the least. So with that, I think I'm going to draw the episode down. Um, our next episode is going to be "Don't Play Us Cheap," which was the final film in the. Um, melvin van peebles box set that criterion put out a couple of years ago and uh richard i know you've already signed up for that one i've got another yeah, guest yeah. i've got another guest in mind a guy who i know on tiktok who's done some pretty deep dives into the van peebles filmography i gotta contact him and see if he'd like to join us for that conversation so we'll see uh how the lineup works for that but i am definitely looking forward to seeing uh, where Van Peebles uh, went after he had done Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, another sort of exploitation exercise that had a pretty big influence in American film uh, especially. So that's what we've got coming up next. Well, I want to check in with you guys and just kind of hear what's been happening. So David, I already talked a little bit about your Film Swap podcast, but why don't you kind of catch listeners up and put a little plug in for your show? <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, we've been going now since uh, January, and we've we've got about fourteen episodes under our belts, and we're we're having a good time. We're enjoying it. Um, we've we've uh, got some really interesting stuff lined up uh, for in the next few months. Uh, we got some interesting guests. If we can, uh, th there's a lot of I'm sure, David, you've had uh, similar experiences just trying to line up oh, schedules with absolutely, people. Absolutely, yep. Especially yeah. when they're in different countries uh -huh. and things like that, so uh -huh. so it can be a little bit of a challenge. So we are constantly having to uh, re 
uh, rejig our plans and stuff. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, so for the next episode we are going to do, we've decided we, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. And uh, William Friedkin passed away a few weeks ago, as you know. Yes. And so we thought we would do like a little bit of a tribute episode to him because he was such a seminal figure. So we're, but we're obviously, we don't want to do the obvious sort of French connection exorcist thing. So we mm -hmm. were going to pick, uh, maybe pick uh, some more obscure films of his to talk about. Uh, uh, so that's kind of what's up next. Sorry, sorry, Richard. Jade and the Guardian, right? <laughs> uh, uh, nope. <laughs> no, we're going to talk about good ones. Uh, a couple of them, the more off the beaten track. So one of them will definitely be Sorcerer, but um, I don't oh, think yeah. Jonathan has quite made up his mind yet about which one he wanted to put forward. So um, yeah. stay tuned for that. Yeah. Uh, and we've got a couple, like I said, a couple of in, more uh, interesting guests and stuff coming up hopefully soon. And I, also you guys, I was going to reach out to you guys and uh, speak to you about because I'd love to have you guys on the show. Uh, Richard, I, I, we're quite keen to do an episode about sort of grindhouse films, and I thought that oh, might be right up your alley. So, yeah. so I might uh, contact you uh, separately and have a chat with you about uh, working something out, something out there. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm Brilliant. I'm back on the pod horsing, uh, podcasting horse again. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I am up and ready. I've kind of had a summer vacation, if if you will, just a lot of life events and other things going on that have uh, put podcasting a little bit on the back burner. But I'm looking forward to you know now that we're in the fall and hopefully things are lightening up a little bit and my work life and elsewhere uh, getting a little bit more frequent. Uh, at this thing and keeping the role going. So yeah, David, I'd love to get with you on film swap one of these days. So we'll be in touch. Oh, well, definitely. I'll, 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 I know we've talked a little bit about it offline yep. there, uh, but I'll definitely uh, reach out to you soon and uh, maybe see what we can get organized. Cause I'm quite keen to have you guys on actually. And, uh, and I also wanted to mention too, that I'm going to be in October. I'm in a production of spam a lot. Oh, at the, oh uh, performing. Yeah. Playhouse. Okay. Yeah, so uh, so that's something else that uh, anyone in the UK who's, who uh, is near enough to Surrey that they want to come out and see the show, that's in October. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun as well. So I'm kind of uh, knee-deep in rehearsals and stuff for that wow, at the minute. That's, but that's going to be fun. That's very cool. My wife is t trying to nudge me to apply for a role in the local production of 12 Angry Men. <laughs> so oh, I, I, I haven't like committed and, you know, I'm thinking about it. Okay, we'll we'll see what comes of that, but I'll at least put that out there just to kind of create a little bit more pressure for me to maybe actually <laughs> oh, well, do something like that. <laughs> oh well, that would be awesome, David. Go for it because it's it's great fun and that's yeah. a great show as well. So well, we'll yeah. see what comes. Also, Richard, you got any updates for us as far as what you've been up to lately, or any other news you want to share? Other than getting invited to appear in other people's work, I really just post nonsense on Facebook. Well, so. <laughs> uh, but you're you're a, you are a great prolific uh, contributor to that platform, and uh, always enjoy kind of reading the latest updates of what you're listening to, watching, and the occasional snags with uh, poorly printed Blu-rays, etc. <laughs> so yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the, the the issue of the day that might be outdated by the time this episode comes to comes to publication but i'm going to try to get this thing mixed and out there very soon so that's uh that's the update from criterion reflection so thank you very much listeners for tuning in it's been a blast guys thank you richard and david we'll look forward to doing that with you again 
very soon and until uh, another episode arrives, uh, take care and uh, Zach yeah, here! I think that'll be it for today. So bye-bye everybody. All right. All right, bye-bye.